Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by LitBreaker. LitBreaker is an online advertising network for book people, for art people, for people who like movies, music, photography, etc. If you want to advertise to people who like these things, go to LitBreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, the list goes on. LitBreaker.com. LitBreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people slash art people slash you know what i'm talking about go and advertise on it oh my god you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful Jesus, dude, what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host brad listy just one person at just one time. Okay, right. guys, here we go right. again. This is it. This is other people. This is me on three hours of sleep. This is you trying to stop talking to yourself. How's it going out there? What's happening? How are you doing? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Alexandra Kleeman is my guest. She is the author of a debut novel called You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine and is available now from Harper Books. Uh, Vogue magazine calls it Fight Club for Women or Fight Club for Girls, or uh, I can't remember. Fight Club for Women? I think it's Fight Club for Women. Fight Club for Females. You too can have a body like mine, available now from Harper. Alexandra Kleeman and I will be in conversation momentarily. Uh, what can I tell you? Oh, speaking of being in conversation, I was interviewed by Colin Marshall for the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast uh, recently. It just went live today. Uh, and, uh, if you want to listen to that, go to LA review of books online. You can find it, uh, for, you know, it's a rare occasion where uh, I'm being interviewed as opposed to doing the interviewing. So I had a nice time talking with Colin. If you want to hear that, uh, I got to say, I'm feeling a little bit lethargic. I know I've been uh, harping on this all, you know, for the past few months. And so I've got a newborn and, uh, I haven't been sleeping a lot, but it's uh, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. I feel like I'm at the tail end 
of uh, the first five months of my son's life. So we're kind of beginning to emerge a little bit into a uh, better cycle sleep-wise. But it's also just, uh, you know, the end of the year. And I feel like you sort of get lethargic during this time of year anyway, right? Everybody slows down a little bit at the holidays. But then for me, you know, I we had a, we just had a big emotional year. New baby arrived in uh, July, and then the rest has been a blur. And I'm I have been moving uh, relatively quickly. Life has been moving relatively quickly, and I find myself slowing down. I've been going to see movies. I just want to sit in a darkened room. I want to sit in a field. I often have fantasies of sitting in a field. I've been having lots of fantasies about getting a border collie. I had a border collie named Merlin, but he died. He's the best dog I ever had. I want to get another one, even though I know it's impractical in a city. And I want to be in a field. And I just want to, like, play fetch. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then, then I have my family coming out. My sisters are coming out for uh, Christmas. And I just have realized recently that I have jury duty on December 21st. And the reason I have jury duty is because I was supposed to have it earlier in the year, but had to delay it because of the baby. And so they pushed me, of course, to the holidays when nobody wants to do it. And I've got to call in on December 21st and find out where, where I've got to go. And so I was telling Carrie, my wife, about this. And I was like, oh, my God, like my family's going to be in town for the holidays. And uh, I could be on jury duty. And I was like, this is a disaster. Like, what do I do? I got, you know, it's my civic duty. I've got to do it. I've already delayed once. I can't do it again. Uh, they don't let you get out of this more than once or whatever. It's notoriously difficult once, you, uh, once you're sort of locked in. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, uh, I'm exhausted and I could sit in a government building fluorescently lit on, on a couch all day waiting and it would be peaceful. It could be very peaceful while the chaos of the holidays is unfolding. I could be in a quiet space listening to podcasts, reading books, possibly even sleeping. <laughs> So now I'm reconsidering the joy of uh, jury duty over the holidays. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, usually the way the routine is you go down there, you, uh, you know, sit around for like eight hours and then they send you home. But, uh, you know, and I have no idea what happens uh, in the, you know, the world of, uh, of uh, government. If the, if the gears of uh, civic life slow during the holidays or if they're actually trying cases during that time of year. But knowing my luck, I'll go down there and instead of sitting around for a day, reading books and like catnapping, I will be called to uh, serve on a jury. I'll be the foreman on a jury for like some sort of gnarly murder trial all throughout the holidays. So there's a chance that I might not be able to podcast over the holidays. I've also been contemplating taking a couple of weeks off. I usually do podcast during the holidays. I don't take time off. That's not like me. I've been thinking about it. I don't know if I will. I could be on jury duty <laughs> while my daughter is like having a Santa Claus experience. I'm serving my country. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Alexandra Kleeman. Her debut novel is called You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. Uh, I had such a nice time talking with Alexandra Kleeman. I should tell you uh, that she's just a very sweet person. Uh, like everybody I've talked to practically for this uh, show has been very kind. There's uh, something extra special about the goodness that is sort of emanating from her. Uh, that was the impression that I got. Just a very kind person and also somebody with a very big brain. This is a very intelligent young woman, very gifted young writer. And I feel like the uh, consensus around her debut novel uh, is that it announces uh, the arrival of a very big talent. A lot of notable writers have been singing the book's praises. A lot of uh, publications have sort of joined the chorus as the reviews have been coming out. And I'm just glad to have had the chance to catch Alexandra at this particular moment in her life as things are just getting underway. So uh, this is the conversation we had. This is me talking with Alexandra Kleeman and her novel one more time is called You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. When I think back on my childhood, the things that stick out the most are um, uh, sort of memories of nature and memories of things I was afraid of. So is that normal? Um, what do you, okay, so it's memories of nature. Let's start there. Memories of nature. Um, uh, well, only child. Our house backed onto a big backyard um, and then a park beyond that. So, in, in what? In Gun Barrel, Colorado? Oh, actually, um, this was back when I lived in New Jersey. Oh, okay. um, so we moved maybe th- 11 times before I was 13. <laughs> Was and this like your parents trying to get tenure or whatever, like doing the academic, like jumping from school to school? And exactly. Jump? Or they'd be, um, you know, they'd get two jobs in different places and we'd move to one of those places for a year and then they'd want a job in the same place and then we'd move to that new same place after that. Or um, sometimes we moved around like to get closer to one job or another um, within the same state or something, same area. But um, I, I think that it has made a big impression on me like uh when i'm living in brooklyn and i hear the rent is going to go up 150 dollars i'm like maybe i should just move <laughs> like it's just always an option for yeah, me well, that's good though you know you're adjustable yeah. And, yeah. and what about this nature experience in new jersey oh um it, it was normal nature but uh it's vivid for me like um i remember inchworms you don't really see inchworms very much anymore but Wait, those are those the little green ones the little green ones yeah um some of them are an inch and you know are appropriately named but some of them are smaller like a centimeter and um uh during the spring there'd just be tons and tons of them hanging on these threads from the uh trees you couldn't like go anywhere without getting an inchworm on you and i loved looking at them like they were little beings like little creatures and so small yeah i have a rem- yeah. i have memories from being a kid in wisconsin um and seeing these little caterpillars on leaves, I don't even know what they. I, cu- I couldn't. Yeah. I can't name them. Yeah, yeah. They were there every you know every spring, and we would go outside and you know pick them off the leaves. I don't know what we did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then what do you do after that? That's always yeah. the question when you're a kid. <laughs> We've I got this. Them. It's no fun. <laughs> 
I, I remember one like um time i feel really bad about when i like got these caterpillars that were everywhere and i was like oh instead of just like putting them someplace else which is what i usually do like release them a few feet away um i'm going to keep this one in a jar and i'm going yeah. to see what it turns yeah. into yeah the kids always have that impulse they want to like have a pet they want to have a pet I, yeah i used to catch fish like my dad would take me fishing in this creek by our house and like you'd catch like bluegill or whatever oh, yeah. tiny little you know and i'd always be like i want it like I want to put it in. <laughs> so we took one home, I and mean, then he actually let me take one home one time. We had it in a bucket, and oh, it like man. it died. It was just like, yeah, it was just like kind of a, a loss. But uh, I think that's normal for kids. Yeah, it's sort of um, maybe where you get your first brush with death. Yeah. So that's an important thing for a, a child to have. We had a salamander. I had a rabbit that died. Oh. And I went out, and my parents didn't. I always tease them about this, but like we had a cage outside. We live in Milwaukee. And it was like dead of winter, like mm-hmm. January. And we, we had this rabbit outside in a wire cage with no insulation or anything. Wow. And I went out to feed it one morning and it was just frozen solid. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like shaking the cage. I'm like, Peter. You know, like, uh, yeah, it was bad. I, I feel like I've read about something just like that in a short story once. <laughs> really? Well. I wrote a short story about it. Really? But I didn't publish it oh, anywhere. No. Yeah. It was like one of my earliest short stories. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it really wasn't, but, you know, I, I tried my best. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you said, what was it, nature? Oh, and things I was afraid of. And things you were afraid of. So what were you afraid of? Oh, like anything you can name, pretty much. I had a fear about it. Um, but maybe the number one thing was uh, vampires. Okay. Um, ever since I was little, and I think it was... Uh, um, not so much, you know, being undead or having to drink blood, which is gross. Um, but having, you know, your sense of who you love and who you want to protect just being taken away from you. So you're willing to go after anybody, you know, then you wouldn't be yourself, but everyone would think you're still yourself. I don't know. I think like, um, did you read vampire fiction or anything like that or see movies or, um, I, it's sort of like I saw snatches of movies and what I saw like was enough to keep me thinking about it for a long time. <laughs> um, I uh, used to have to keep the dictionary like in a different room because it had the word vampire in it. And I just didn't want to look at the dictionary and think of that word. And this is a know. deep fear. Yeah, it's a deep fear. Um, and to a lesser extent, like things like zombies or ghosts or whatever. Um, but one... Uh, like one weird story from my childhood connected to this is um, I went to a comic book store with my father uh, when I was maybe 10 and um, we walked in and they were like, you're the 10,000th customer. You like, you get this free package of grisly vampire merchandise. It's all about one particular <laughs> vampire card game. And I looked at it and I was like, dad, can we please not take this? <laughs> and he said, we have to take it. It's free. <laughs> right, right, right. It's free. You can't leave it behind. No, we can't leave it behind. And you know, it's mine. And so then I just have this whole package of stuff that evokes instant like fear and sleepless nights in me. And so um, I give it to my best friend the next weekend at her birthday. And I see her mom watch her take it out. And her mom looks at me and like, who is this small child that just gave my child like <laughs> a whole pile of terrifying You're not terrifying playing with her anymore. Stuff. No, no. So, okay. So vampires, anything else? Vampires. Um, uh, 
Nothing super pronounced. Uh, actually, weirdly, um, nu- nuclear radiation <laughs> at okay. that age, too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every child goes through a nuclear radiation phase. Everyone, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it actually gets... It should get scarier as you get older when you realize how much radiation there is and things, but you just sort of get callous to it. Now I accept it. But okay, so you see, you're the you're the daughter of uh, academics. Yes. You maybe, uh, you know, you're surrounded by bright people, and mm-hmm. I and you probably have access to books and uh, I don't know. For a kid, to, you know, how old were you when you're thinking about nuclear radiation? It seems like something that <laughs> be kind of an advanced fear for a child. You know, it's still about like ages seven to nine or okay. so yeah. um <laughs> like my mother's work was a big influence on me because she had a lot of really interesting sounding books that were translated from japanese oh. so when i was done with my books i'd sneak into her office and i'd just borrow whatever i thought was good and um i read some weird and very formative things at that time like i remember she had a copy of um, margaret atwood's the edible woman um and I was like, what is this? And I flipped to the end because I was like, I'm going to decide if the ending is good enough for me to read it all. And I don't know if you remember that book or read this ending, but it ends with a woman returning to her apartment to find that there's a surprise birthday party happening for her. And um, what they're serving at the surprise birthday party is a large cake in the shape of a woman, like a naked woman with pink frosting all over her. And her boyfriend takes a slice of it and, like, cuts it out and offers it to her. And she, like, sticks a fork in it and eats a piece of this woman. I remember being so scared of that. And um, <laughs> once I was older, um, actually just a few years ago, and I went back and I read the whole book, it, it isn't nearly as scary. It's still a little bit surreal, but right, it's right. it's a very realistic world. But, um, you know, the surreality of that scene taken out of context uh, just haunted me forever. <laughs> do you read Do you read the ends of books regularly? Um, yeah. I, if, <laughs> if I'm really excited about the book, I really want to read the end and then, you know, go through the middle without that, like, horrible tension of needing to read as fast as I read possible. The end of bo- yeah. I, I often will open a book and go straight to the end and read. Yeah. What and and people criticize you for that, but it's a totally natural impulse. <laughs> I need to know. I need to know what's going to happen yeah. right away. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, you live, you know, in a multitude of places. You have a fear of vampires and a fear of nuclear radiation. Uh, you're in touch with nature. Mm-hmm. You, you spend your formative years in high school uh, and then your freshman year of college in Boulder, Colorado. Yes. Um, yes. Which is like an, an, a mecca for nature lovers. So good. Um, you did not do a ton of drugs. No. <laughs> and then you decided to leave Boulder. And then um, I decided to leave Boulder, yeah. Why? Well, when I was in Boulder, um, I had a bunch of credits from high school that carried over. And like what I was doing was I was majoring in Japanese English and biology, like a genetics, evolutionary biology concentration. Um, and my goal was then to finish in three years. Like, um, I, that was what was possible. And that seemed like, you know, what was good. And 
then I'd get on to whatever the next thing was. But um, then I sort of wondered why I wanted it all to finish as quickly as possible and why I wanted to do these things that I already had credits built up in. Um, and uh, a teacher had told me when I was in high school that, you know, where I should really look at was um, Brown because they have a really interesting writing program. And she thought that I'd get something out of that. So I applied there and there alone, kind of on a whim, to transfer. And uh, when I got in, it seemed like, oh, this means something. Like, Boulder at that time, it was in the midst of this football uh, sort of date rape scandal. I guess there are a lot more of them now, but uh, there was a big high-profile one then. And um, it was also the nation's number one party school that year. Uh, so that morale was low my, my <laughs> among alma mater. the professors. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it was still earning that reputation while you were there. Like, I helped build that reputation. <laughs> Do you ever shotgun a beer? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the keg stands. I mean, there's all sorts of stupid things you do. Why do people shotgun beers? Is it because it's too slow to drink a beer normally? It just gets you drunk faster. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's all about speed oh. <laughs> and precision. Um, so you go to Brown then. So then I go to Brown, yeah. Different, I mean, what's the difference? Like, was it a, a much more serious academic experience for you? Um, what it was was, like, uh, for one thing, no concentration requirements. So I um, I went sort of narrowly in two directions. Like, I did cognitive science and all, like, cognitive science, lab work, classes and exactly what I was interested in cognition, and then only writing classes. So um, I'm not a very well-rounded person. But you uh, know what you like. I know what I like, so yeah. So when you talk about cognition, like what about cognition? Like what specifically were you fascinated by and what were you studying to learn? You know, what got me into it was um, a professor I had at Colorado, this guy Bruce Kawin. He taught a class that was um, modern and contemporary novels, but it was all focused on... I took a on... class with Bruce Kawin. You took a class with Bruce Kawin? Didn't he have a beard and he's like bald? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he likes to sit on top of the desk and he like folds his hands. Yeah. And then he just talks. He's just, and he's kind, <laughs> just of, a, lays he's it kind out. of a smart ass. He's a little bit of a smart ass, but yeah. he is very smart. So yeah, right. He's my, he, was my screen, he was my screenwriting teacher. Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Small world. Okay, I can't believe he's still there. So you took a class with him, and what did he do for you? He um, linked eight amazing novels or so, um, like the Samuel Beckett trilogy, um, Moby Dick, uh, Ulysses, all these things, around the idea of the ineffable. Like, what is it out there that our minds are unable to comprehend, and yet we can sort of intuit it there beyond the range of our comprehension. Um, and so that's what really got to me. It was like, well... Um, did you read w- Ulysses? I did read Ulysses, You did? Yeah. Okay. What is it about? Because I've tried. I can't. One day in the life of a pretty normal guy who's uh, who eats a sandwich. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Because like, I, <laughs> I mean, this is going to be a really scattershot attempt to talk about, some, you know, to talk about uh, Joyce, but like... Um, do you know who Terrence McKenna is? Um, a he, critic, is that right? No, he's yeah. like a psychedelic, um, you know, he was like a psychedelic scientist. He was deeply into uh-huh. studying the effects of psychedelics. Wow, no. And so he was uh, an awesome talker. I've ta- I think I've mentioned him before on the show, but just like incredible to listen to. Uh, I'm not the person to grade him as a scientist. I'm sure that more traditional scientists would probably have their issues. Mm. But an amazing talker. And I think, uh, you know, obviously interested in uh, exploring the unknowable or what is like, you know, beyond Mm, normal levels of human uh, cognition. Yeah. And he was a huge Joyce fan. 
Wow, wow. Uh, you know, and he would talk about Joyce, and I think Joyce even had a word for it that I'm gonna f- that I'm gonna forget when he was talking about like the, you know, the the, the beyond or whatever. Wow. Uh, so, do you get a sense of that when you read Ulysses? Um, is that like in that book, or is that more of Finnegan's Wake? That's more of Finnegan's Wake, I think. But I do think that like um, the formal techniques in Ulysses are pushing against the ineffable. Like you want to get at. Um, like the musical form of thought or something like that. And uh, that's something that we have trouble talking about or picturing clearly, but he depicts it. So if you live through it and you get this sense like, oh, that's what it might be like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then also maybe like, are you interested in the ways in which, uh, you know, human beings can sort of uh, uh, assemble inform- or assimilate information in their minds and, I guess the word for it would be intuition, you know, where yeah. you, where you have kind of like this, uh, these disparate experiences, you get all these different sensory impressions that are like really quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then suddenly you can arrive at a conclusion about something without having received like really explicit concrete information. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, um, I think that, um, rational logic is sort of a shortcut to like help us shorten the time in this, like, intuitive thought process but i think ultimately we do a lot of our thinking through feeling and through like this hazy sense of this like thinking your way towards one hazy conclusion and then trying to refine that into something you can articulate you know yeah yeah i I often wonder how i know certain things maybe you're a psychic maybe you have a little bit of that Uh, maybe a little (laughs) bit but do you believe that that's a thing um no i don't i'm I'm (laughs) the same same with me i'm kind of a skeptic I've, I've, i've come i used to be more inclined to believe it and I think there's maybe some level of intuit, like it's intuition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there are people who have really, you know, strong antennas and can intuit better than others. But like whether or not people can actually have visions and see stuff, I mean. Yeah, I mean, they could just have their threshold set lower for considering like subconscious information, information you can act on or decide on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like everyone has a blind spot in um what they're skeptical of like for for me i'm skeptical of many many things but i still feel like something like the loch ness monster um <laughs> is possible <laughs> or i want to believe what about sasquatch sasquatch i'm less convinced by but that's probably just because i'd rather there be dinosaurs i think, there's yeah. a yeti. I, think the, I think the yeti is real yeah well why wouldn't there be there are so many alternative like human species well and just like the at altitude remote yeah. It seems like it seems more feasible to me. Like I don't think like in the woods outside of Seattle there's going to no. be a Sasquatch running around. Yeah. But if you tell me that like up in the Himalaya at like, you know, 18,000 feet there's a solitary like, you know, ape creature that's white and like roaming around. I'd believe that. I yeah. could believe that. Yeah. I think I think there could be a few of them breeding. Yeah. Just a few. Just yeah. like 500. <laughs> <laughs> Small community of yeah. uh, yeti if that's the plural. But um okay, and then uh, you're studying cognitive science. Mm-hmm. You're also studying uh, writing. Yeah. So that's your beat. That's my beat. And okay. um, that sort of, those two things were like the two poles of my identity. And they met in this middle sort of like, I was interested in language processing and like how the mind changes when you read and what languages, like what language can get at what and is what it language? can't get at. Tell uh, me. <laughs> it's a... Um, a bunch of concrete tokens that are connected through lived experience to it, sort of 
multifaceted representations, like some linguistic, some, I think, like, largely emotional, tactile, motor, sensory. At least um, that's the way I experience language. Like, um, I can not define all that many words in really effective ways, I think, but I can use them. And, like, when I read them, I can feel them sort of unfold and, like, which connotations like are primary and which are secondary and what other ways the word could be used that pushes against the main definition i guess like i think that words are wide they're like little access points into all this amorphous stuff yeah yeah it's really actually it's very trippy it's really trippy yeah you know i mean like i was reading a lot there was like something in my twitter feed it was like a quote from abraham lincoln assuming it's accurately you know <laughs> quoted you never know it with uh, the internet but it was something to the effect of, you know, thoughts externalized and consumable by the eye, or like it's like the greatest invention in the history of uh, humanity. It is, I don't know. Like when you slow down and you actually think about what you're doing when you're making these marks on a page, yeah, and what yeah. they can what they can do in another person's mind. It's pretty incredible. Definitely. Uh, so that's what you think about. Yeah, that's what I think about. <laughs> Constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then what about like uh, like with your novel? It's like uh, consumer culture, um, the body. I think mm. uh, specifically the female body. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, like how are these? How did these things become a concern of yours? Uh, I think through lived experience. Like there's something very strange about having any type of body. I think and having a female body. Um, maybe is particularly strange just because you're conditioned to think about it so much. Um, so uh, the oddness of occupying a physical form plus intense reflection on it, modification of it, care of it, like uh, I think that it makes being a woman kind of unique. Um, and also Women have troubling. to do women, <laughs> I mean, women don't have to do a lot more, but women I think in our culture are encouraged to do a lot more in terms of upkeep and yeah grooming yeah. and maintenance and all this stuff yeah i think what's different maybe is um as a man what you choose to do with your appearance is all kind of optional you can do it or not do it but as a woman if you're not doing it you're making a statement <laughs> yeah, I, I, I encourage everyone to groom <laughs> i said yeah. this i said this before like i think um i think everyone should get regular pedicures <laughs> it drives me crazy to think because you use your feet constantly. Oh yeah. I'm not talking about like, I'm not talking about like uh prettification. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like feet are kind of gross anyway. Yeah. It's like, like an oil change or it's something. It's like an oil something change. Like yeah, it's maintenance. <laughs> maintenance. It's the one part of your body that like you wash your hands every day, you uh you take showers but like Yeah. You take care of your feet. Uh, yeah. Why is it considered controversial? Like guys don't want to do it because they feel it feminizes them. Uh, or some guys do. And then I think some women resist it because they feel like the culture tells them they have to do this and they don't, you know. Oh, yeah. No, uh, I, I like a guy with clean feet. You don't? Know? Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> Nothing like, wrong with that. People should take care of their feet. What's odd, though, is I actually don't take care of my feet. <laughs> Neither um, do I. I, had a <laughs> I say this and I haven't gone, but I mean, I have yeah. young children. I don't have time for this. Yeah. Thing. But you have, and you, you appreciate it. You thought it was a thing to I keep. I was like, this is a good idea. And by yeah. the way, it was also very relaxing. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking to myself, like, women have this figured out. Because, like, my <laughs> wife goes semi-regular. I mean, she goes, like, once a month, I think, at least. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's about as much as you should go to keep it. Right. Really. I mean, you know, if you're going to do things and, and uh, maintain. But it's a very relaxing experience. It is. And it's weird. There are a few other experiences 
besides spa experiences are designed to be relaxing, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. it, you just kind of read a magazine and um, it's hard to find time like that. Yeah. It's increasingly. Yeah. And I guess you could be on your phone. Or you can meditate, but then your feet would be the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't. People are dealing with your feet. It's hard, I think, get into some sort of really deeply contemplative space. But just yeah. having any time to just stop is increasingly rare to the point where when I go to the dentist, I can almost fall asleep in the chair. Oh, yeah. Like while my teeth are being cleaned. Yeah. Like my dentist is always like, are you okay? <laughs> like, you <laughs> no, don't understand. This chair is so... I want one of those chairs in my house, you know, just like a dental chair with like the motors. Yeah. The way it props your neck up is very nice. It's fantastic <laughs> for your posture and it just feels really good. So... But don't you think it's strange like when you were a kid or something, you probably hated being in, at the dentist's office. It was uncomfortable in the chair. It was like a little bit scary. Like that seems like a true feeling and... The feeling of being really relaxed in the dentist chair, someone goes through your mouth, doesn't, it seems like we lost, um, we lost sensitivity to something we should still be sensitive to. <laughs> Are you trying to say that I'm dead inside? Is that what <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible, but, um, okay. So cognitive science, writing, Bruce Kaywin, where Bruce were we? Kaywin, man. Yeah. He sent you on your course. And then you got in, and then you started to think about by virtue of your own experiences in life, not necessarily uh, exclusively in an academic context, but more primarily drawn from just like being a young woman alive in the world mm -hmm. and seeing the, you know, uh, the way in which young women are, uh, young women are expected to be, or at least in the context of media culture yeah, yeah. and resisting against that. Yeah. Um, it's like, I didn't want to make an argument against something too strongly, right? Like I don't have a solution, you know? Um, but I did want to make some of the absurdity of it visible. Um, like my favorite books are ones that have, uh, made the world appear to me in a different way. Like, sure. um, you know, created problems where there weren't problems or made, um, defamiliarize the familiar. Exactly. Yeah. Animated the world. Right. Yeah. Um, so part of my challenge was to set this book in a world that really was modeled on or mimicking ours and sort of exaggerating it. Um, and also showing to myself what exactly the situation is that I was in. <laughs> okay. And so yeah. this was like, where were you living when you were writing this? Were you in New York? I was in New York. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it, uh, came from feelings I felt when I was living in Northern California. Um, because what you went to Berkeley after Brown? I went to Berkeley after Brown. Got your what master's or PhD or what did you do? Um, I uh, I got my master's and I was in a PhD program. I'm writing my dissertation. <laughs> um, At but, the moment, uh, technically yes, but um, is it going right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrote a novel. You're busy. You're on book yeah. tour. Yeah, I'm on you're doing book tour. podcasts. You know. That Yes. Yeah. But and it's there, all, and it's all more fun than writing a dissertation. I was going to gonna say, and are you on the clock? Like, do you have to have it done by a certain, is there a deadline with these things? No, it's not really clear. And I have a short story collection next year. And, um, so I'm still working on writing a couple things for that. So, okay. Yeah. And you're young. Um, well, I'm almost 30. Oh my God. <laughs> Stop the press. But I mean, congratulations. That's quite an accomplishment, oh, you know, you. at any age, but to do it uh, before 30. Um, well, does it feel like, uh, I guess it, you've been working on this for a while, so it probably doesn't feel like it happened overnight to you, but I mean, it must feel, uh, like um, among your contemporaries, um, 
you've got to be one of the few that are getting published by a big house and getting the kind of push that you're getting. Yeah, uh, we have a we had a really large MFA program, and um, now a couple of my classmates have published their first books, and then who are, um, who are, like, who are oh, they? like Sarah Novich, um, who wrote Girl of War, which is wonderful. Um, Kevin McEnroe, um, who wrote Our Town. Um, Any which relation was, to John? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, he is John McEnroe's son, and um, is he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, I was joking. Oh no! <laughs> oh my God! I, yeah, um, he's really low key about it. We never knew in class, or I, I never knew for some reason. I'm always the last person to know this kind of stuff. Okay, um, me too, clearly. <laughs> but it's a really great um, Hollywood novel. So it's sort of based on um, his grandmother's life, and she was sort of. Um, a star and then fell on hard times and then found herself again um and the mother of uh tatum o'neill okay yeah yeah all right yeah so all right but you're you know you're out there you're one of the few um souls who wind up getting published and i think published well before yeah. their 30th birthday i mean it does happen but it's rare um like how has the experience been for you first time out first time out i mean um everyone in my publisher has been so wonderful and they're all such hardworking, book loving, generous people. It's great. Um the experience of promoting a book or or um being an author instead of um just writing a book alone by yourself in a room. Right. In your having pajamas. To talk, having, to talk, <laughs> having to talk to people and having to talk to people, yeah, it's like being turned inside out a little bit. <laughs> sure, sure. So But you, in a good way. Is that can I add in a good way? Yeah. <laughs> Of course you may. Now, uh, you know, you're an only child, I think, maybe introverted. Is that a fair? Yeah. So is it is it to go out and do press? Because you've done a lot of press. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this book's gotten really good coverage, and you've done lots of interviews, and people have profiled you and all that kind of stuff. Like, like doing one or two of those is one thing, but doing it repetitively has got to, at a certain point, make you feel mm. turned inside out, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Uh well, there are a couple of questions that I feel like could get asked a lot and then the question starts to die so that when you, you know, like saying your name over and over again in the mirror. Um, or then any word, you know. Fall, yeah, any word just falls apart. And so that there are a couple of questions that are kind of falling apart for me right now. But like what it's also. They? I won't ask you. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one question is, why did you name your characters A, B and C? And like. um there are like four different angles on that. There are four different answers and they're all connected. Um, but I mean, it's a interesting challenge to try to step back from what I know about why I did that and, and like trying to think my way back into that question, I guess. Right. Um, but on the whole, like I just love questions. So it is really fun for me. You don't I, mind. No, especially like a question that's really hard to answer. Well, see, but you're the child of academics. You're kind of a born teacher. <laughs> Teachers like to be asked questions. You know, sadly, I think I'm a born student. Very well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a good student. I'm sort of a, um, y you know, uh, off and on teacher. Okay. Yeah. Do you have academic aspirations? Like with this PhD, like you want to go on to become a professor? Um, uh, my partner, he's also a novelist, um, and we're both going on the job market this year. He teaches in Monmouth right now um, on the Jersey Shore, a really beautiful campus. Um, but he's a, to be honest, he's a better teacher than me. He's just like very natural in front of people, and um, he he can have 
you know, 25 people looking at him without feeling any type of psychological strain on was, himself. He's very sturdy. You, are you, are you, uh, are you comfortable? Cause you've been having to give readings and everything. Are you comfortable yeah. standing up in front of people? Um, I'm, well, I definitely wouldn't like to do it. Um, you know, as a fun activity. Daily. <laughs> Daily. <laughs> yeah. Um, I sort of feel like I need a lot of time alone to like regrow a shell over myself right and um uh to you know be alone in my head experiencing like timeless time like the non-passage of time and just reading whatever staying up however late like thinking um not even thinking anything good but like i need that feeling of being alone and unproductive and unmonitored to recharge and how long do you need um, like 18 a hours. full day, <laughs> a full day, <laughs> 24 hours, 18 hours a day. If, as long as I have that 18 hours a day, I'm good. And then I can go out and give a public performance. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk some, I want to talk some more about like the concerns of your book, because I think the concerns of your book are the concerns of so many of us. Uh, I could, ju- I could begin by talking about food. Mm-hmm. Your book is, is, uh, dealing with food and in kind of a satirical, funny way but a darkly funny way yeah yeah. and i can find myself you know because i uh, i'm one of those people who's extremely susceptible to any kind of health trend which my my <laughs> listeners know if i read that such and such food is bad for you i'm like i'm done <laughs> and it, conversely if i read that like drinking a glass of red wine is good for you you know it's good for people live long i'll drink yeah, red wine do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll do whatever you say yeah uh, but it, you can start to feel uh yo-yoed because the information mm. is always changing. It's often conflicting with the previous information. Yeah, yeah. It's and very confusing. It starts to make you feel like a crazy person. And so mm. I've gotten to the point where I'm trying to uh, simplify. Mm-hmm. If it grows out of the ground, it's probably good for you. Yeah. Or at least not like, you know, inher- inherently. harmful. Yeah, inherently yeah. harmful or toxic. And if it's something that's made in a lab, it's just kind of like the Michael Pollan approach. Just like eat real food. Yeah. And don't overdo it. Yeah. And eat, and I, I don't eat meat, so I eat a lot of plants. Oh, that's great. Am I doing all right? Yeah, I think you're doing all right. Okay. I mean, um, I think everything is being refined and figured out and, and then contradicted and overturned and things like that. But there is nothing wrong with eating plants. I would <laughs> I hope not. I think that's not. pretty I hope that's just firm. like, yeah, that's, that's what I want. I want simple, uh, uncontroversial. I don't want to think about it too much. Yeah. I mean, um, the times when I've been happiest as you know, a food eating creature are, um, were when I lived in Northern California because you'd go to the grocery store and you'd see like types of plants you've never seen before. You'd see like beautiful versions of the same vegetables you've seen before. And it was like, it was a joy always to like pick them out and enjoy to eat them and experience them. Like, um, that felt like the right way to eat. But then, uh, in New York, I think the process of shipping food or um, selling it or, you know, something something gets lost there. So um, farther, in Staten farther, Island... Is it farther yeah, from the farm or something? It's farther from the farm and um, it's just not in as good condition and it's more like monoculture vegetables, sort of like um, pretty much everything a child could name, but only those things. You know, you don't get yeah. the purple potatoes or right. like the cool, like, 20 kinds of mushrooms or whatever. Um, even 
at the nice places, I think. And in Staten Island, which is where we live, um, it's sort of like one step further removed from New York so that it can be very confusing. Like you get things and they spoil the next day and you're like, what is the story of this bell pepper? Right. Like, why, right. why has it had such a hard life? It's like a month old. <laughs> it's a month old, yeah. It was yeah. picked a month ago. Yeah, It's that... been in the freezer <laughs> the whole time. No, but I, I was uh, eating a baby carrot the other day and it suddenly dawned on me like, this doesn't taste like anything. No, yeah. It's just like a shitty carrot. It doesn't, it's like, I don't know what it is. Like, are baby carrots even, uh, are they allowed, like, how do these exist on the planet? Did somebody... Re- oh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, well, they're whole carrots, right? They're unattractive, like, subpar carrots that have been <laughs> <laughs> shaved and cut and shaped. Um, okay, until so it's not like a little tiny baby plant and you pick the baby carrot off the baby plant. It's like a, no. a big carrot that's then, like, reduced. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. It's a, it's a big carrot that's been like beheaded and decimated and whittled down. And I feel like, a, <laughs> but I feel like the big carrots that you get at the at the store have more taste or something than the baby carrots. Yeah, I feel like they do too. But maybe it's just like, um, uh, maybe the baby carrots are older, or maybe like. The they, core of the carrot, like that they have the most of, isn't the best part. Or maybe they just use the shitty big carrots to make the baby carrots. Yeah. I don't know what it is. But Who knows? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like tomatoes as well. Like tomatoes are also uh, something that I find it very hard to get a good one. It's really hard to get a good one. Yeah. yeah. And like um, there are so many tomatoes that you look at them and you're like, are you, should you even be called a tomato? <laughs> like you have a tomato shape, but basically you're just, um, you know, sour water in a round form. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, like food stuff, did you ever have food issues like growing up or is it like food eating disorder stuff? No, actually, um, <laughs> that's one of the ironies of this book. Like, uh, a lot of the themes sort of verge on anorexia, but I've always been very comfortable with eating. The question has always sort of been like, what to eat and what am I eating? I guess. Um, yeah, I love to eat, but I'm the same way. Yeah. It's like, I just want to put good fuel in my body. Yeah. I want to eat the right stuff so that I'm healthy. Exactly. And then, um, I don't know, there are a lot of times when you eat something and you look at, you reflect on it and you're like, oh my God, I feel terrible because I ate that and I had no idea. What is it in that that is, you know, undoing me? Um, I'm a person who... I will always eat regularly, but especially when I get sort of immersed in work, I really forget about um, how my body is feeling. So if I'm deep in the project, you know, like I'll just eat a piece of toast every time I get hungry. Um, And it's like pressing snooze on your hunger alarm, like snooze over and over and over again. And I'll do this for days. Um, You're that that focused. um, Not exactly focused, but unfocused on on the physical you know right um i might be unfocused on everything i might be like completely scattered but still just trying to work um and i never want to take time away to like make food decisions especially because i don't know if they'll be the right ones even if i make them right yeah yeah so like nominally i'm eating food and i'm healthy but I sort of wonder, like, I think that we think too much of eating as, like, a question of consuming a certain amount of things at a certain time interval um, and having it look like a meal, but we don't really know. We've lost that connection, like, with what we intuitively want to eat and what we intuitively know makes us feel good. Yeah. Yeah, and I, all, all the food 
trends, you know. Um, I'm sure some of them are good, and I'm sure some of them are a little nutty, but they're also externally imposed. It's know? also a, it's a big business. Like I it was is, in the bookstore. Yeah. I was in the bookstore the other day, and I'm looking at like, you know, the natural food books. I pass mm-hmm. by. That used to be a very small shelf occupier. Yeah, yeah. It was like a couple of people, like two, three, four, five people. I mean, I guess that's not maybe 100% accurate, but I I feel like it's it's, uh, exploded over the past 15 to 20 years. I think food culture in America has really exploded. And this whole foodie thing and the food network and uh, the celebritization, if that's a word, of the chef, you know, where we've elevated these people to celebrity status yeah, all of yeah. that is new and not all of it's bad. I mean, I think it's good for people to be thinking consciously about food and I think it's fine to enjoy food. Yeah. Uh, where I think sometimes things go off the rails is that, you know, it, it can be easy to lose touch with uh, where food comes from, what its impact is on the environment in terms of how it's grown or how it's farmed or how, yeah, yeah. you know, all that stuff matters. Like it's actually, I think, one of the most impactful ways that a person can um, – I don't know, affect social change or by, by making good choices food wise. Yeah, I think so too, especially um, with the way, like in California, agriculture affects water supply, agriculture affects um, land use, ecology, climate, um, climate, climate economy, local economies. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's an industry that like is so closely tied to the land around us and to people. Um, around us. But it's easy to get obsessed. It is easy to get obsessed. So it's like I'm trying to do all this and I'm trying to think about it in a conscious way but at the same time you know, sometimes I'm just like you know I just want to eat and not be sitting here like grading the experience on that level. Yeah. You know you just want to enjoy. Yeah. And I don't want to be one of those people who's like uptight and you go to a restaurant with me and it becomes annoying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I'm conscious of that too. And you cast a pall over the meal. <laughs> Everyone's like just draining the fun out of this experience. So I don't want to be that guy either. So it's like trying to kind of maintain some sort of balance. Definitely. Um, and I mean, in LA, in New York, and the West Coast, or or in places like Boulder, I feel like that foodie culture is there and it sort of keeps us thinking about the choices we make in a critical way but i've also been to um like i was at a residency in rural nebraska and the food environment there was so different i was living on a farm surrounded by 30 or 40 miles what of, residency was this it was it's called art farm it's a great place <laughs> it's pretty much a magical place on an actual um farm that now doesn't grow very much but uh you're living in like barns and the farm buildings and it's beautiful there and you're surrounded by farmland, um, but it's all growing inedible food. It's all um, biodiesel corn or it's soybeans that are going to be used for... Art Farm is owned by Monsanto. Yeah. <laughs> Art, <laughs> Art, Art Farm is like a, a lone bit of resistance in the Monsanto cornfields. Right, there. right. Stand as a beacon of hope. Yeah. But it was weird to be surrounded by food and have none of it be actual food. Well, that's the thing. You have to grow all this grain for, um, well, they're growing it for fuel now, but I mean, you're also growing it as feed. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it's feeding the cattle that it takes, it's a really inefficient use of land. Yeah. But then you see like, um, did you see that article about, uh, how they're feeding cattle leftover candy, like secondary candy, Great. cows eating like sour punch straws. That's what they need. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be a good tasting steak. 
Maybe. Maybe you can stamp um, candy-fed on it. <laughs> Free-range candy-fed cow. <laughs> That's the stuff, too, though. You know, Now it's like you want pastured eggs and you want free-range, you know. Free-range chickens used to be enough, but now it's like, are they pastured or are they in a barn? And yeah, there's yeah. all these different like variations. And I feel like you know, if you go to Whole Foods, they play on consumers who are trying to be conscious in this way in, in a really, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem too nefarious because I think they are trying to just inform consumers on a certain mm-hmm. level. But you can also get a certain kind of consumer to consistently spend more money. If you keep yeah. if you keep ratcheting up the ecology of the thing, and it's like, yeah. I go in there and I'm like, okay, my daughter, we we're supposed to feed my daughter eggs because she needs more protein. I'm like, but I want to get the pastured eggs. I don't want just the free range. I don't want them in the barn. <laughs> like, I want these chickens roaming in a field. This <laughs> is the sort of thing I go through. It's a psychological, uh, you know, conundrum every yeah. time I walk into that store. But um, and it's hard because you're you're trying to imagine the chicken too, and like you get a much better picture when you think pasture, but. Um, who knows what's legally defined as a pastor? Yeah, there's, the... there's, it's sprinkled with candy and you know, <laughs> God knows what. <laughs> like they live in a pasture, but they eat Tic Tacs. Yeah, it's like a pasture, but there's like no grass. It could be just like a gravel parking lot. Who knows? But um, so okay, so consumer culture, food culture. Um, I feel like also, and this is kind of a part and parcel to food culture. Is just. Uh, the ad, the advertising industry mm-hmm. and uh, television in particular, uh, you know, as I think, I guess the internet and television are the main vehicles, but I feel like, you know, display ads have a certain power, uh, but I don't think it can match an actual television commercial. Yeah. And the reason I say that is that if you live without television commercials and then you're suddenly exposed to them again, yes, it it's sort of jarring. And I, I find that with my daughter, especially because we watch... We use Netflix. We're like one of these cord cutter people. Yeah, yeah. And we so, yeah, so we just watch, we watch, te- we watch like lots of shows. She watches her cartoons, but there's just no commercials. Mm-hmm. And thank God. Yeah. Because, you know, kids, they have, you know, if you're watching Disney Channel, they have advertisements and those advertisements are directed right at your child. And yeah. Suddenly they're like, oh, I want this. I want that. And you're like, where did you even hear about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> right. And so, you know, sometimes though she's around uh, televisions and is watching shows in that way and. Uh, all of a sudden those conversations come up and I myself will suddenly, you know, we'll sit there watching commercials and, uh, you know, suddenly remember like, oh yeah, like these things were, they're just a constant. Uh, They were a constant in my life up until, you know, three or four years ago. Definitely. And I mean, um, each individual commercial taken by itself, like you can see, you know, what it's selling, how it's presenting it, like whether it sways you to want that thing or not. But taken as a whole, I feel like they all um, are kind of selling the same thing, like the desire to to buy more, get more, or um, be better, be shinier somehow. Um, and so even if you're resisting, you know, the impulse to go and buy, I feel like it changes you. Like it makes you sort of itchy inside. There's a little anxiety. Yeah. When I mean, you talk about the word hunger. Hunger, yeah. You know, and it's not just hunger for food, but it's like a spiritual hunger. It's a hunger for more. It's a uh, hunger for more, con- you know, a consumer product for a yeah. bigger house, for that, you know, for the Tesla or whatever it yeah. is, you know, like whatever the holy grail of automobiles is these days, you know. Yeah, I think still the, the Tesla for now. <laughs> the Tesla for a certain kind of consumer who wants to feel like. Uh, it's like a presentation of wealth, but it's also a presentation of social consciousness mm. all wrapped up into one. Yeah. It's like 
the extreme Prius. You know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Prius for rich people, basically. Yeah. And so you get to, I don't know, you get to advertise a certain uh, intellect or something by driving one of those around. And it's just apparent, apparently it's a badass thing to drive. I've never driven one. But. I've never driven one either. But we have a Tesla dealership in Boulder now, so I feel like... Of you should be you. able to take a test drive, right? You um, would think, uh, yeah, a Tesla yeah. drive. A Tesla drive. <laughs> just, <laughs> is that a thing? Um, but yeah, no, it's just, I feel like when you look around at the world and uh, you think about the big problems that we face just as a species, mm-hmm. so much of it comes down to consumption. So much of it comes down to this weird hunger. Yeah, like what interesting to me is as um an embodied feeling like as hunger directly related to like your stomach and your nourishment um hunger has a uh the possibility of being satisfied um it's not entirely open but for the sort of psychological hunger i feel like there's no end to it it's got an infinite capacity yeah (laughs) um and that's really scary that is like the definition of unsustainability. <laughs> right. And so it's like, you know, how do you get, I feel like people are ultimately going to have to learn to be happy living more simply. Yeah. Uh, convinced to live more simply so that, you know, we can continue to exist. Yeah. But it's sort of hard to dial it back. It's And especially like, I think there's like a... a a, a growing conflict in the developing world where you have like a rising middle class in China mm-hmm. or India, these developing nations, and suddenly, you know, they have income and can, you know, afford certain things that they couldn't afford before. But now we're at a point in human history where it's like, by the way, steak, try not to eat as much. Or, yeah. you know, air conditioning, if you could just turn that off. And they're like, wait a minute, we've been, you've had yeah. it your whole life. Why can't we yeah, have it yeah. now? <laughs> and so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be tough. Uh, I don't know how you... I don't know how you get people to sort of turn around once they've Yeah, once they've gotten got attached to something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is that something like that are those kinds of thoughts brewing in your mind as you're working on this book or is it too far afield? Um no, that's definitely um a lot of what I'm thinking about and I think that like it's really difficult to give a picture of that whole situation so um i thought i'd have to zoom in on sort of but you can't solve the, you can't solve the world's problems no <laughs> <laughs> not yet but i'm working on yeah, it right. <laughs> um uh but yeah actually in this second novel that i'm starting to work on um i'm trying to think about at least why it's so difficult for us to picture long-term crises you know and why we get so much pleasure out of disaster movies and seeing like a a beautifully disastrous short-term crisis unfold but um we have no way of relating to these things that happen on a larger time scale it's so weird it's like if it's It's not it's not in your backyard yeah it's not happening right now in your backyard people just don't have time for it yeah and uh that sort of short-term thinking is part of the problem yeah it's uh, these things that we can't see and can't we don't have the mental infrastructure to imagine um they just don't affect us emotionally so your job is to help people imagine them i i feel like that's a lot a lot of writers jobs yeah we've got to we've got to like make people sit down and step by step understand catastrophe better yes (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean and it's it's all kind of of a piece 
like yeah. thinking back to like the food thing and you know actually you know kind of retracing the steps of your food from your plate back to its source yeah definitely. that's something people don't usually do i mean i mean you can't you have to yeah. eat you're in a hurry <laughs> <laughs> i mean it would be interesting though it'd be interesting to like um you know, do a piece of investigative journalism that follows one green bean or something, or one chicken leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like from like you know, from from field to McNugget or something. Yeah, yeah, or to the from um or from your plate to the Tic Tac factory. Right. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. What the hell is a Tic Tac? Oh yeah. Um, actually, I was thinking about that because I bought some for the first time in t- twenty years, maybe. Yeah. And um, my mom always has Tic Tacs. Yeah. They present themselves as mints, but they're totally ineffective as mints. They're, they're just, just a tiny pellets. Candy. So they're pellets yeah. of fructose, high fructose corn yeah. syrup, basically. Um, but they do have a um, you know pill-like shape that makes you feel like they're having. You feel uh, um, like you're doing something to yourself, something good or solid or productive yeah, when you eat the tic tac it has like a medical shape yeah like just just two only two for right now <laughs> <laughs> i don't have no you don't have you don't have a handful of tic tacs you yeah. just take a couple yeah maybe it's it's a placebo candy you're that's, supposed to that's interesting feel and better it, well no it is interesting because uh that's a calculated decision it is right um, someone sat down and said we're going to make tic tacs this shape and this size and this packaging now that's something i should google up like um who invented the tic tac and what were they thinking well it's 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 a product that has been around for years so whatever they were thinking it was they had something going for them i bet like i'm imagining a 1950s pediatrician or something he has this idea well yeah it's so funny too when you think back like uh the things that used to be considered healthy that are no longer considered healthy yeah definitely uh Everything is always in flux, and certainly there are things we're doing now that, like, fifty years from now or a hundred years from now, are going to seem atrocious to people. Yeah, <laughs> like you think back to like doctors like prescribing cigarettes to patients, or <laughs> professional athletes doing cigarette commercials, and you know that yeah. especially that just seems completely bananas. But that's what you know, not that long ago. No, not that long ago. So, how did you get this book published? I mean, it's a, it's a hard mm-hmm. road to go for anybody, and especially for somebody so young. Like, you were obviously very uh, diligent, and you you did the work. Yeah. Existing for days on nothing but toast. <laughs> um, and so you must be a pretty focused person, hardworking. Yeah. Well, um, I think there, there are a lot of ways to do the work. I sort of um, kept myself in graduate programs and things where your schedule is extremely flexible so that I could, I could um, have some days where I just work on like my critical theory stuff or on classwork and then some days where I could just get lost for like maybe up to three days at a time. Um, I, uh, uh, sometimes don't see that many other people. How long are we talking? Um, sometimes like a week, but now, you know, my partner and I live together. So, uh, you're going to see him. Yeah. And that's great. Actually. Like, um, that just raises my baseline happiness level by <laughs> so much. You have no idea. Um, but, uh, is it ever lonely? Yeah, it's lonely. I think like, um, you're like, what am I doing here at art farm all by myself? What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> when you, the, as you gaze across the, the acres and acres and acres of soybeans, <laughs> <laughs> Um, definitely. But it's also like, uh, you know, a great opportunity to get to spend so much time with 
the ideas that interest you, sort of turning them into stories, I guess. You got to have that time. You've got to have that time. Yeah. I mean, so that's that's the deal, and I think that having like a, uh, a significant other, um, that I think that does help, especially after you spent all day like inside of your own head. If, yeah, if like, yeah. Because if you go from that and then you're just in your like studio apartment by yourself, <laughs> and that's the new, then it's like you and Netflix, or you go out, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but then if you go out, you could be dealing with lots of people. And that, that can be onerous. I feel like that one person is just such a good thing to have. It is. It is. You're not alone, <laughs> but you're not overwhelmed. And, you know, if you know this person very well, it can be such a comfort. You know, it can be a big um, burden for that other person, too, though, if, if you are their social interaction. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're like, I have some ideas I want to discuss with you. You don't mind. Yeah. And do you I mean, or when you finish, like, a long day of work or, like, a long stretch uh, of two or three days of eating toast and writing. Yeah. And then suddenly... You know, you're sitting across from your uh, boyfriend, boyfriend, fiance, um, fiance, fiance. <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. Um, do you suddenly find yourself like describing the book and asking questions and like talking it out out loud? Yeah. You know what's tough? Like um, a lot of times, well, I'm not the type of person who shows stuff to people before I feel like pretty solid about it. So um, a lot of times you end up at the end of the day with all of these feelings but nothing really to say. <laughs> and that's when it's good to have a partner who is also a writer because they sort of understand, oh, yes, you have mysterious angst um, yeah. that uh, comes from nothing in particular. Like uh, you did write something today, but for some reason you're not happy. But that's okay. That's just part of the process. It's so weird because it's, it's so frustrating to be – I think it's frustrating to be working on a book and to not have it by the tail. You know, yeah. you have all this material and these feelings or whatever it is. You're kind of following a breadcrumb trail and trying to figure it out. And until it solidifies and you feel like you can really see it, it can, it's, makes you feel anxious. Yeah, and definitely. It, but it, the flip side is that it feels really good when it starts to come together and when you feel oriented and you know where you're going. Yes. Um, but then when you're done, there's a weird melancholy where you feel lost because you don't have that project anymore. Yeah, and yeah. Then you, I, I find myself romanticizing the part where I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, grass is always greener. But yeah. it's like it's sort of the, the, the real best part of writing, I think, is doing the work and especially on the days when it's going well. Yes. That's the best thing. That is the best Everything thing. Everything else is sort of uh, a sideline. Um, everything else hopefully you forget about it after the process is done and then you're full of optimism <laughs> for the next You're going to black out this experience entirely. You yes. won't even remember. <laughs> uh, tomorrow morning you'll wake up, you'll have no memory of this. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you wrote this thing. How long did it take you? Um, it took me, I'd say, a year. Oh, a year and a half of writing for the first draft and then another year and a half of revisions okay. approximately. So like three years. Um, and I didn't have a real other job <laughs> while I was doing it. So um, it could have been five years or six years easily. Sure. And then yeah. uh, you finish. And then finish. Yeah. But, uh, and, and how did you give an agent? Um, I had an agent from um, when I was uh, in my first semester actually of the MFA program um, a story of mine got forwarded to Lauren Stein of the Paris Review so um, that story sort of launched my career or at least 
put me in front of the eyes of a few agents who um, were really great people. And uh, I found my agent, Claudia Ballard and William Morris, um, who is amazing. Um, I found her in October, and she... You know, I, I think, like, um, with an agent, it's really tempting for some people to go with someone who really likes the book as it is, you know, and is enthusiastic about it as it is. But um, someone who's willing to be a reader for you and help you work with it sure. over years, that's actually going to be, like, a really important reader and collaborator Sometimes your for first the rest reader. of your life. Some, yeah. Some people, my agents, like, if not the first, one of the first. One of the first, huh? And, yeah. And you want, you want an agent, I think, that has some good editorial sense or at least that's a bonus if they do definitely i mean i think i think you do because um there's a lot of work in finding your story and you need someone who you trust who can tell you like you know i think you're on to it here or i think you lose the thread of it here or um someone who will be honest with you too about like what what are you doing right <laughs> what this is, is this, this is <laughs> terrible what do you put yeah. so you said you found Claudia in October. Is that October like of a year ago or um, October? Now it's uh, now it's like four years ago. Okay, I guess. okay. So it wasn't like this, this past October. No. Oh, okay. Um, all the time is so confusing to me because so much of it was homogenous, you know, like um, seasons passed, but not that clearly. And like I was doing more or less the same thing, and then the book got sold and it was still a year before it came out. So um, that's a weird time when, you know, you have uh, something's happened. But it hasn't really but happened. It hasn't really happened. Yeah. Like, it only partially happened. And it continues to happen over a year. And, uh, like, it'd be much more satisfying if someone were like, like, we bought your book and surprise here are the copies here right? that is. would be that would be everything <laughs> that, would be the, that would be the ideal scenario yeah a year is a long time to wait a year is yeah, yeah. it's a long and process sometimes it's more for, yeah so book how long did when you went out to market you worked on it with claudia you refined it mm -hmm. you had other readers as well friends or uh i had um some i had workshop parts of it and i had some great readers from workshop like i kept about three people who all do things with their mind that I can't. So, um, like what? Like, uh, well, one of my friends, um, this guy, Shane Barr, who's an amazing writer, he, uh, is really good at, like, conflict and getting people to come together in interesting ways. And getting people to come together is not my strongest suit. Like, maybe <laughs> because I'm an only child. Conflict diverse. So. <laughs> conflict diverse. Um, uh, more interested in, um, description than action naturally um no more capable of description than action but very interested in action because well, it's the it, other place intense for me. action sequences are really hard to write they are really hard I to think. write yeah and it's um and it's hard to uh get all the moving pieces in order like all the moving pieces that are actually involved in something happening in the world but when you do it in writing i think it's it's more exciting than watching it happen in a, in the movie or something. If you something. do it well. But it's, it's it also well, easy. Yeah. I think it's easy to lose a reader. It is, yeah. You know, it's easy for people to become disoriented if the writing's not rendered properly. I mean, if you're not Don DeLillo, where people trust that you're going to take <laughs> them someplace interesting, right? Yeah. Um, it can be hard. Like, uh, I'd say that Don DeLillo's football game in Endzone is the only football game I've ever watched <laughs> from beginning to end. <laughs> 
It's a great game. Yeah. I felt like the the opening section of Underworld, some of the best writing he ever did, or that I've read anywhere. Mm. That baseball, the shot heard around the world game. It, yeah. I mean, it's like you were there. Yeah. <laughs> Better than if you were there, probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's unbelievable. Um, so you had Shane Reed. He's helping you with action. You have Claudia reading. I have Claudia Reed, and um, she's amazing at uh, identifying and bringing out the sort of emotional core of a book. Like she works with a lot of writers who are unconventional and surreal and strange, but all those writers have this. Um, the emotional stakes of their writing are clear, um, and so, she, like usually, we think of writing that's not based in the real world with realistic characters is writing that's not going to hit you in the heart. But um, I feel like um, the time's sort of passed when we're uh, willing to read genre fiction that's just sort of about an interesting idea or an interesting possible future. Like, now we also want to know what that future feels like. Yeah. We're greedy. We're greedy. We want it all. (laughs) So you go out with the book to market. How, I go out with the book. How long? How long was the sales process? Um, it was really quick. Um, I had uh, a guy named Barry Harbaugh who had been emailing me since the Paris Review story. Um, so for three years or four years at that point, maybe. Um, and as I slowly wrote my novel, he was rising up through the ranks of. Um, uh, different publishers, like five years at uh, Harper, the place that ended up buying and publishing my book. So he, we sent it out, I think, on a Thursday or on a Wednesday, and um, on Monday he had an offer and he wanted to preempt it. Wow! Yeah, so exciting. Yeah, it was really exciting. And How did, where were you when you found out? Um, I was actually in Palm Springs. <laughs> we had, at a, I was at a resort. I was sunning myself. Well, we went to Palm Springs in the middle of the summer, so it oh wasn't God. like a, a picnic. That, that's like <laughs> hell on earth. Yeah. But actually, um, it's really relaxing because your body comes to understand if you do anything, um, y- you're going to be unhappy. Yeah. So you just sort of lay there. It's, it makes you inert. It forces you into deep <laughs> relaxation. <laughs> um, so you get the call. Um, so I get the call, and um, Barry had written me a great email, sort of, um, a email that was much funnier than my actual book. It was a wonderful email, and um, I really felt like he understood it um, and would know also what it needed. So um, by Tuesday, sort of less than a week, it was all done. It was all done. Yeah. <laughs> and did you did you jump? I guess you didn't jump up and down because it was too hot. It was too hot. <laughs> You just laid there like a slug and were like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I, I lifted my um, arms and I said, yes, <laughs> softly. And then you were parched. You yeah. Know. Uh, well, that's exciting. And then uh, you have an, another a collection of stories. A collection of stories. You do out also on Harper? Do out also on Harper. So it was a two book deal. It was a two book deal. And okay. I think that um, it'll be out next October, um, maybe called? around Halloween. It's called Intimations. Okay. Um, which is, it's not exactly the title of one of the stories, which is Intimation. Um, but, I mean, I think <laughs> the word m- means a lot of things to me, and I think it works for all of the stories. Okay. Yeah. You like writing short stories uh, as much as you liked writing the novel? Um, or more? I 
I'm not sure how they relate, to be totally honest. Like, um, what I like about short stories is, like, you can be 100% committed to this um, fictional world for a period of 20 pages or 15 pages. Like, um, this solid chunk of your life um and then you exit it like i think that's great there's this freedom to writing a short story i think because you don't have to be 100 percent certain that all of your decisions are going to be able to last you through 300 pages you know um and so i feel uh i feel freer from myself when i write a short story um so that like uh I mostly wrote in the first person, and, and now I'm writing short stories in the third person in a realistic universe. People have actual defined jobs. They have names. Um, <laughs> Why did you give them actual names? Um, I was well, joking. That was a joke. No. That was an extension of the, uh, the often asked question, why did you give them yeah. letters? <laughs> I, I mean, but that's a question I haven't answered before. There you go. Well, um, at first it was a joke. It was like, I'll show them. Her name's Karen. <laughs> Does that please you? Is that realistic? <laughs> How do you like me now? <laughs> but there is like a way that a person kind of comes into focus around their name. That's why I think naming is really important and why I think naming a child would be so stressful. Well, me, <laughs> what went, did you do? We I mean, we had books. <laughs> we Naming my son. Bo- the girl was easier. There were a lot of girl names we liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one conversation about it. That was very strange. Um, yeah. But then it came to the time to name our son and it was like a much more laborious process and it was up until i mean he was born and we were in the in the hospital room yeah. having like you know tense conversations like what did are we you do? look at him and sort of go hmm he's not you know a you, threat after all yeah i mean we uh we looked at him it was like it came down to like his name's river uh-huh. um but it came down to like oh, are we great. gonna are we gonna give him a um a more traditional first name and then make river a second name, and then we also wanted a family name, so his, he's got four <gasps> names. His name is wow. Jack, River, Carville, Listy, but he goes by River. Oh, cool. Well, you know what? All of those names are really cool names. I think he's going to be fine throughout all of so. his schooling. I hope so. <laughs> he can always, you know, he has options. Yeah. We gave him options. That was, I think, what we ultimately landed at, that uh, we always wanted to name him River, but we were worried, like, like, is that too hippie? You know, kind of like all those kinds of conversations. Like, where will, where will, you know, where will he wind up living? What will he want to do with his life? Because like, a name, you know, a name is something you have to carry. And yeah, like you say, people, I, I think people sort of come to own their names. But there are certain names that you probably can't do certain things. Like, if your name is, uh, like, Moon Unit. Moon Unit, you probably, cannot be a brain surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> And not because you're incapable of it, but because your patience would sort of tense up. Exactly. Yeah. It creates a response. So, you know, you want to give, uh, I think we wanted to give him the opportunity or the option to be able to create create multiple yeah. responses. Well, I think that a river can do almost everything and a jack can do anything. That's right. And better than most people, too. I would like <laughs> Jack River. Yeah. It's a strong name. <laughs> um, well, I congratulate you on all your success. Thank you so much. At such a young age. I look forward to seeing what happens for you, um, you know, with subsequent books. How far are you on the novel? Um, uh, first chapter. Okay. <laughs> I sh- so I shouldn't even be talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little. We'll knock on wood. Um, so congratulations on the story collection. Also, congratulations on what might be a novel. Yes. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about it. And uh, thanks for making time to come over here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thank you.
All right, folks, there you go. Alexandra Kleeman. Her novel is called You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, available now from Harper. You can find Alexandra Kleeman online at alexandrakleeman.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Alex Kleeman. She's also on Facebook and Instagram. If you are a uh, Facebook and, uh, and or Instagram user, thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget, this podcast has an app. It has its own official app. It's called the Other People app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. Uh, you get the app on your device. New episodes automatically download to the app. You don't have to do anything. They just show up as if by magic. You can uh, download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. Here's how it works. You get the app. The app is free. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you for free. And then if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want access to almost 400 episodes and counting, uh, available at your fingertips wherever you go, you just sign up for an Other People premium subscription right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. It's less than 10 bucks, right? Or right around $10 for the year. 75 cents a month, access to everything, anywhere you go at your fingertips. Good thing to have as you head into the holiday season. If you're traveling, you get stuck in an airport, you can listen to podcasts in a uh, TGI Fridays in the American Terminal. If you have any uh, thoughts you want to share with me, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. So, uh, jury duty. I don't know if it's going to happen. Maybe it will. What if it does? Would that be, that would just be epic if I'm in some sort of nightmare litigation. I don't know. We'll have to find out. Stay tuned. I've seen some movies lately. I saw Creed, I saw Spotlight, I saw Brooklyn. I didn't love any of them. I thought they were all fine. Uh, The biggest crowd pleaser? Creed. And uh, to be honest, I I normally wouldn't even be interested in seeing the eighth installment of the Rocky franchise, but it had been getting such great reviews that uh, I went to see it. And I gotta say, I got a little choked up a couple times. Something about Rocky. I started thinking about it. I really put a lot of thought into it because I was like, a, why did I go see this? <clears throat> why did I go see this? B, why did it move me? And, uh, you know, why did I, like, I got suckered in. Like, I was cheering for him, you know? Like, it, the movie got me a little bit. I, uh, I enjoyed it as a piece of pop art. And, uh, you know, say what you will about the Rocky franchise. The, the character's been around my entire life. I think the first Rocky came out, like, what? What was it, 77? I was two. So he's just been around. I've seen this dude get old sort of marked some time for me. And then uh, the other thing that I was most pleased about was I was thinking about this movie as a business decision by, I think his name is Ryan Coogler. Is that the director's name? He also co-wrote the script. A very shrewd move because uh, the movie business is all about franchises. You know, these studios don't want to pay for anything that's not a known commodity and they want to pay for things that aren't cost prohibitive if they can afford it or if they can, uh, you know, find it. Though I guess the tentpole movies they're willing to get spendy on. But... You know, he just went and he took a franchise that was supposedly dead and uh, sort of tired, and he reinvigorated it, and uh, he went out into the world with very low expectations. Like, who was expecting this movie to be, like, even halfway decent? And yet it is, and so now critics are doing backflips. And I should say, too, Michael B. Jordan is a genuine star. He, he seems very young Denzel to me. He's very good. And uh, Sylvester Stallone, also endearing and good in the role. There's something kind of winning about him as an old man. Uh, who is not boxing anymore. And to be honest, the Rocky character as an underdog has always been 
you know, in a very basic way, very winning. And it is the, uh, the central character, uh, you know, the defining role of Sylvester Stallone's career for sure. And, you know, there's something about Sylvester Stallone that sort of moves me. He lost his son to an overdose. So I think I was thinking about that. I was bringing that into the theater with me. It's kind of rooting for him to have a good moment on screen. And then, you know, no one like what actor has been shit on more critically than Sylvester Stallone as being like a one note actor or somebody with zero range or somebody whose intelligence is conflated with the intelligence of Rocky, which is, of course, uh, you know, not necessarily super refined. So anyway, I was cheering for him. And then I was also thinking to myself, uh, maybe most of all, is that I was happy that Creed uh, served as a kind of corrective to probably the biggest flaw of the whole Rocky franchise, which is that it's a white dude uh, winning the heavyweight title and like beating, uh, like, you know, all the black guys. It's always sort of uh, struck me as being absurd that Rocky's going to beat Apollo Creed. <laughs> and I mean, hey, it's an underdog movie. The the first, you know, one or two movies. But then, you know, you get into Rocky Three, and he's beating Clubber Lang, and it's like, come on, dude. Enough already. Not beating Mr. T. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to see that be the sort of uh, antidote and, and kind of like an apology almost. Like, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I think that's it. Am I done? Jury duty, movies, the holidays, lethargy. Please remember that William Gaddis died of prostate cancer and that Mozart was addicted to billiards. That's all for now. Thanks once again to Alexander Kleeman. Go get her novel. You too can have a body like mine. And uh, I'll be back soon with another conversation with another uh, writerly person for your enjoyment. I hope you guys are having a good holiday season. Try not to go uh, crazy. Try not to flip out in a uh, public uh, retail space if you can avoid it. Just shop, just shop at home. Shop online. Stay organized. Stay calm. Don't get suckered in to some sort of uh, extravagant retail, you know, retail experience that you feel like you need to uh, participate in due to some sort of weird social pressure, possibly facilitated by your uh, social media experience. What am I talking about? Actually, you know what? I just went online and I, I double-checked because I had a second thought after I said it. I, I said uh, just a minute ago that Sylvester Stallone's son, uh, Sage, passed away from a drug overdose. And when I went online, it looks like it was actually heart disease and not a drug overdose. And uh, I didn't have a lot of time to investigate, but the site that I read said that the coroner's report came back saying that it was heart disease and not a drug overdose, which made me feel like an asshole because I said that he died of an overdose. I think that was what I initially thought or had in my head. So I thought I would correct the record even though I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> so how's that for an unclear clarification?